Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12, season four of Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell. In this episode, we return to our Voices of H. Kaya series, this time talking to Sergeant Tanner Champlin. Tanner was a corporal squad leader with Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines at H. Kaya. Here's Tanner's bio. Tanner enlisted in the Marine Corps on September 11th, 2017, four months after he graduated high school. He completed boot camp at Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego and graduated in December 2017. He next completed infantry training at the School of Infantry West and was assigned to Marine Corps Security Force Regiment. While there, he completed basic security guard course and was assigned to 5th Platoon Bravo Company Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team, or FAST for short. He deployed twice with FAST, first to Yokosuka, Japan, and then to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Following his time with FAST, Tanner joined Alpha Company 18 and was immediately sent to Corporal's Course in the Advanced Infantry Marine Course. He deployed with the battalion as part of the 24th MEW and took part in the HKI evacuation. After returning from the deployment, Tanner remained a squad leader and left the Marine Corps in September 2022. He currently works as a civilian employee for the U.S. Air Force as an aircraft electrician. A quick admin note, this episode was recorded on March 18th, 2023. And now for our interview with Sergeant Tanner Champlin. Tanner, thanks so much for coming on the show and being willing to share your experiences about the HKI evacuation. Hey, thank you very much for having me. So first thing I want to get into is you joining Alpha 18 and, and your experience prior to leaving for the 24th Mew. So immediately after you get to Alpha 18, you go to Corporal's course and then the Advanced Infantry Marine course. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So you're at AIMC, you hold a squad leader billet but then you miss the workup with your platoon and squad from Alpha 18. You're then assigned a squad right before you leave for the Mew. So first question, what was it like picking up a squad you didn't know and then embarking on that Mew? What was going on in your head? What challenges, if, if any, did you face? Yeah, um, I mean, the whole joining 1-8 was a bit of a weird mess because it was, you know, I, I got out of fast. I was with Bravo Fast Company, and we ended up doing the two deployments, and then came. I went to one eight, and it was like a rapid fire shotgun. It was, you mm-hmm. know, I went straight to Corporal's course, and as soon as we were out of Corporal's course, I think I had like, I got put in a platoon as a team leader, but it was for like a week <laughs> or a week or two, and they then sent me to AIMC. Yeah. I, I felt very unprepared just going from the fast like workups to now being in an infantry battalion. I didn't know if I was ready for AIMC or anything. So I went to AIMC and came out and they, they just kind of handed me a squad because now it was like, there was only a few of us that were AIMC trained in the company. Yeah. So it was weird. Cause I took over one of my friend's squads actually, which was kind of weird. He was his squad and I ended up just kind of showing up and becoming the squad leader. And yeah. it was a, uh, weird thing because it was like we didn't have any workup we i think really i the only workup i did with them was going on ship for the first time we ended up right before deployment we ended up going out and kind of sailing around on ship and it was weird because i felt like as i was talking to some of the squad and whatnot i no disrespect to the guy that i took over from but it felt like the squad was very unprepared and it was kind of a nerve-wracking thing whether you know there's that mindset of going on a deployment and you know getting told oh this is what we could do but no one really believes that that's going to be a thing and so but there was still like this thing where that was going on in my head where it's like well even if we go to a you know just a training op 
this squad doesn't seem prepared. They don't really seem to know like how we should be doing it. They just seem very unprepared for doing an entire workup. So challenge came upon really like trying to spin those guys up the best that I could. Mm-hmm. What was the organization of your squad? Were you fully manned, you know, three fire teams, two fire teams? No. Uh, well, okay. So the squad organization changed a few times to our deployment at first. I think I was, we ended up losing one of the guys right before deployment for my squad. He ended up going to another company. And so I ended up dropping to three teams and I think it was three teams of two mm-hmm. at the time. Well, three teams with fire team leaders. So three teams of three, I guess. Got so we, we had 10 guys in squad total. Got it. Got it. And what was your deployment like with the Mew prior to heading HKIA? What had you been up to? What did the, the squad, the platoon been doing? We had followed just other than being on ship. We ended up going to a few um, different ports. We did some training in uh, England, some like bilateral training with the Royal Marines is what it was titled as. We didn't work with them. They just kind of hosted a range for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was squad attack ranges. It was the first range I ever did with these squad, my squad, and it was a squad attack range. Yeah. And it was like kind of the first time to see them actually perform because on ship, you, you know, you can't really do too much buddy rushing or anything like that Mm -hmm. so it was kind of throwing us right in the middle of things so we were doing a lot of rehearsals out there we kicked a lot of classes on ship whether it was just you know me and one of our other squad leaders uh julian gonzalez me and him just kind of went back and forth because at that point our platoon was only our two squads and so most of the time we were and we were both undermanned squads so most of the time we were just like one of us would kick a class on ship, like PowerPoint, you know, death by PowerPoint stuff, mm-hmm. trying to spin them all up. And then other times it was doing like TDGs, things like that yeah. on ship that were just kind of random, just trying to keep us busy. But yeah, we went to England after England. Then it was just kind of Liberty ports. We went to Spain, I think, after that. It may, that may be reversed too. I don't remember. I think that, but we went to Spain. That was just a Liberty port kind of thing. We were stuck on Rota. Then it was Greece. Then we went to Saudi Arabia, or it may have been uh, Oman. I don't remember what came first, but then we went to Saudi Arabia, and that was the next like big training events that we had, where they based Saudi. They tried the battalion tried basing Saudi kind of on like a um, more ITX level training, where we did a full on like platoon attack on a, a massive range, <laughs> very yeah. range four hundred type, very large. And then after Saudi Arabia, we ended up going to Kuwait, and then from Kuwait to Afghanistan. Did you find yourself with with any of the training you were doing prior to getting to HKI? Did you find any of the training was helpful, was useful once you got on the ground? You know, are you doing at any point crowd control work, manning ECCs, any anything like that? We did the most crowd control type stuff we did, and it wasn't even crowd control. I know the rest of the battalion while we were in Kuwait ended up doing a lot of like weird like gate ECC or and you know things like that. I don't remember our squad doing that at all. We ended up we focused and really our I would say our company more focused on you know just like the basics of infantry being an infantryman you know just like attack and maneuver. It was so there wasn't much stuff training that we did that actually affected or was effective for HKI, I would say. I mean, other than like personnel searches, we did that on ship a few mm-hmm. times, like, you know, just doing things like that. We didn't really do much of that from when I got in. I'm sure I don't know exactly what the workup looked like right before mm-hmm. I took over that squad. So that I know some of the companies 
or some of the platoons from the company did some like non-lethal training, things like that. But from my personal squad, no, we did not do any like thing that would be pertinent to HKIA really. Got it. When did you get news that your company would be heading to HKIA for sure? And what's your reaction to this? What about the Marines in your squad? HKIA wasn't really discussed until we were in Kuwait. There was lots of word coming down from, you know, like we'd get briefs from our Intel guys. Some squad leaders would go in and get briefs from uh, our company Intel guy and kind of telling us about the ramping up of Afghanistan. But that was while we were on ship. And I would say that came pretty early on in deployment. We were getting like almost biweekly updates on like, hey, the Taliban have taken this over. They've taken this over. And so it started becoming a little bit more real, but we didn't ever get like the for sure until... I wouldn't even say what when we were in Kuwait, even when we were in Kuwait, there wasn't like a for sure. It was more like, okay, you're staged just in case. Mm-hmm. It, it was the day, like it was late. Uh, I want to say probably it was one, two o'clock in the morning, yeah. the day that we ended up leaving that it came in for sure. And it was, uh, we all had like rooms in Kuwait, a bunch of squad leaders all kind of shared one. Because at that point, we had gained another squad from another platoon got broken down midway through deployment. And so that squad joined our platoon. And so uh, us three ended up just kind of sharing a room and (laughs) came in late at night. Our platoon sergeant ended up running in and he was like, hey, get your stuff ready. And we were already kind of staged. He's like, get your boys up, get ready. We're we're going. And so then it just kind of, that was our like for sure moment. So I went around waking, you know, the team leaders up and whatnot. And at first, I mean, (laughs) It was a little bit like, you know, it was definitely like a kind of a shock. I wouldn't say that there there was no visible like fear or anything. It didn't seem it was kind of more of an excitement, but I think it was an excitement. Well, fear covered by excitement. I I think it's silly to say that the guys weren't nervous, you know. There's a, a thin line between, I think, anxiety and excitement, fear and interest in and wanting to know like what's going to come next where are we going what are we doing and those things can all be at play at the same time yeah absolutely what was your understanding of the situation on the ground prior to arriving at at hkia what had you been told was going on you know how uh, were the afghan forces holding up in kabul yeah this was a weird like it's kind of a weird blur that uh we ended up even when we woke everyone up, we ended up going out and staging to get ready to get on like buses to go, you know, fly out. And there wasn't really a, a ground update. If I don't, rem- if I remember correctly, I don't remember hearing much of a like, okay, this is the situation on the ground. What I do remember is like <laughs> us being out in like a basketball court in Kuwait. That's where we were all staging, and they ended up offloading a bunch of ammo and they were like load up your mags and so there, there was definitely like at that moment when i was like okay here's a bunch of mags and we're loading all our guns up and we're going con three in our rifles yeah. before even getting on a plane it was like oh like there was never a for sure thing though uh of this is how it the ground situation is but it felt like you know it felt very surreal like almost a storming of normandy beach type thing like we're on a plane and then the plane starts landing in Afghanistan as it's coming down to land in Afghanistan. If I remember correctly, and I could be wrong here, but I could have sworn they told us to go con one as we're on the plane, like on the runway. And it's like, are we about to just walk off this plane and be in combat? So, But there was no real for sure update 
on what was going on. It was just like, hey, this is an intense situation. The Taliban are closing in on Kabul and we're showing up in Hikaya. So I, I don't remember, and I could be mistaken on that con one things that don't hold me to that, but sure, sure. that's something that I, for some reason, have a memory of is being on that plane and being like, hey, we're going con one as before we even got off the C-17. Got it. And you and I have talked offline about this, that that period, I think for you, for many people who are there is a blur and days float into each other. And, you know, that remembering the timeline day by day, hour by hour is uh, an impossible task. So mm-hmm. uh, with my questions, if it's asking about a certain day, try to answer to the to the best of your abilities. But again, not, not going to hold you to it. Yeah, of course. Um, my understanding is your company arrived at HKIA at 0200, 14 August, Saturday. You're the first Marine combat unit on the scene. Would you talk about your first day aboard HKIA? How did, how did the situation align or differ from what you expected? Yeah, it was uh, weird. We got off the C-17 and like, and they were hurrying us off. So it felt very intense while we were getting off, but then we got off the C-17, had our packs, everything. We had a full kit on, like night vision down. We, we, we were, we were ready. And then a, like, I don't know, a little bus, you know, one of those airport buses yeah, to like yeah. move stuff kind of just pulled up on the plane. They're like, all right, yeah. go ahead and hop on. And at that point it was like, what's going on? Like there's mm-hmm. nothing happening. And it was just kind of us checking in. It felt like we we're, you know, onboarding onto a base. There wasn't like some high stress thing. It was just onboarding onto a base. We ended up doing like some paperwork I, I, if i remember correctly or like not even paperwork but like scanning our cac cards in mm-hmm. then we staged to go you know find where we were going to be kind of sleeping at which was it looked like an old office building kind of that we stayed in so we got all staged over there and then we got brought into the like the coc of kabul essentially and they kind of told us about the situation, but it wasn't really a situation update. They were telling us that, hey, there's so there's a gym over here, chow halls down the road. It was just more onboarding. Yeah. And it was like, are we just hanging out in Afghanistan now? Like or, or what's going on? You know, it wasn't there was no intensity. But yeah, that day, then we just went to bed. Uh I mean we yeah. we just went to sleep. They there was no timeline to be woken up. Dude slept in. I remember sleeping in to like nine probably nine ten o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. got up people were like walking to the chow hall they didn't have to have kit on nothing it was just like just bring your rifle so i went and grabbed some food and then yeah that's kind of it was just a very relaxed day at first the squad leaders ended up going out with the platoon higher and we ended up just kind of walking the perimeter of where we were at of northern hkia to kind of check out what's going to, what what we need to do if we were to hold, have to hold defenses, things like that. Just kind of looking at like any vulnerabilities and whatnot. And, but that was kind of it. We hung out with some Turkish guys in a post for a little while and, but there was no intensity really. Yeah. And it sounds like there was no real sense or foreboding, foreshadowing of of what was to come. It seemed like the, the situation was pretty calm. It sounds like. Yeah. So the next day, 15 August, the Afghan government falls. With it, most of the Afghan National Defense Security Forces quit. What happens next? I mean, when do things start going wrong from your perspective? I'm going to probably cut back a little bit to 
14 August, I want to say. Sure. Uh, sure. It, may, it may have been 15, but after we did our little tour of the base, kind of looking for vulnerabilities and like certain things, looking at the different gates, or really not even gates, looking at different posts, our platoon ended up getting called out to go. And it was supposed to be just an element from our platoon. I think it was supposed mm-hmm. to be like one squad, maybe not even a squad, like maybe like a fire team, went out to the airfield and was helping out with the embassy was getting evacuated. So it was helping with the Department of State personnel, like we were bag boys for them. That's what it mm-hmm. ended up being. Like the whole platoon got out there and we were just, they'd get off a bus and we'd go over and grab their bags and carry them over and set them down so they could fly out. And they, but that's all it was. We were just kind of, hey, y'all go ahead and sit over here to the Department of State. And, but there was nothing really intense about it. But we did that for, I want to say, it was a long time. We did it for almost 24 hours probably. Mm-hmm. And so that's when like our actual, like we were actually doing work was helping that. And our platoon would do that for like 24 hours and we'd sit guys down to have like an hour long rest and then yeah. just try cycling people through. And once the entire, we got embassy, I guess was evacuated. It was like, all right, well, we're good. And we ended up going back to our little hangout, you know, hooch to go get some sleep because we had been up for so long. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went out for a cigarette and someone i don't remember it was probably my platoon's um sergeant ended up coming out to me and some of the other squad leaders and like hey get the guys up second platoon just got shot at like sniper fires happened Mm. um afghanistan has relinquished control to the taliban and so we ended up getting everyone up real quick and we went to some gate it was weird turns out it was a weird miscommunication i guess and higher but our platoon ended up going to some gate on the Afghan National Army side of the base. Like we Got were it. very far away from anyone that was, you know, American. Yeah. Uh, and we sh- ended up driving out, but we missed, we drove past the gate at first and they realized that we drove past and we were like heading out of Hkaya. Like that was the road to heading out of Hkaya. And so they needed to turn all the vehicles around to get guys back. We had our machine gun squad, um, you know, attachment, everything. And so we're, they ended up telling our squad, my squad, to hop out and kind of put up a roadblock to block this road from anyone coming down it while they move everyone to this gate. Got it. And so we hop out, and that was our first like moment of kind of seeing what's going on because at that point, there was a bunch of Afghan National Army guys that I guess were supposed to be catching flights or something out of Ichkai. I don't know yeah. what went on with them but they kept on there was a bunch of them we ended up having like just while we were doing this little roadblock there were like 30 cars piling up and a crowd of them getting you know in front of me and i had like two of my fire teams in like ditches on either side with like with live ammunition rockets yeah. <laughs> like we were sitting there like all right well what's gonna happen right. I, if i remember it correctly it was me and i think dustin were in the middle of the road just kind of like trying to communicate Mm-hmm. but that, that was like the first language barrier and everything right and it was trying to tell these guys like you can't come this way and they're they were all very adamant that they have to go that way which then it turns out they were allowed to go that way but we ended up going back to this gate eventually they pulled us back to this gate and we kind of held like gate operations but not really it yeah. was there were some afghan national army guys there at first and then they all just kind of like walked away set their guns in a corner and we're like all right we're out of here and just left and so we were now stuck to manning this gate which we just lowered it and weren't letting anyone through yeah yeah uh because we didn't know we we had no like actual essay on what's going on with this and we sat there for a long time and then at one point like 
some i want to say i could be wrong here but i want to say it was like a turkish ambassador was getting evacuated they came in like with a lot of men like mounted vehicles or yeah. machine gun mounted vehicles and they just kind of pulled up and were like all right what's going on right now mm-hmm. there's this is kind of a weird situation and we sat there for a while and they just kind of pulled us back they they were like hey you're all right turns out this was not needed and so they pulled us back and everyone was able to go through after that we ended up i'm sorry where, where are we in these questions i got no you're you're good so the question was where do things start to go wrong so you've described yeah, yeah, yeah. being sent out to that gate was that the berm gate Does that sound mm-hmm. right no it was so berm gate was passed we went through berm gate second okay. platoon was on berm gate and we went through it and okay. went like probably three miles into the afghan national army base oh, wow and it's just uh, it's just your unit, right? You don't have there are no army units around. No, it's, it was just our platoon. Got it. And so you've got these Afghans who show up, the Turks show up. Do you end up letting these the Turks come through, or you know, or are you just kind of keeping them there at, at arm's length until you're told to to let people come through? Yeah, we we held them there at arm's length, just held them for a long time, and then. Because we lost, I think, if I remember correctly, we lost radio communication with hires. So we were just kind of out there. And finally, like a Bearcat pulled up with our XO in it. And he's like, all right, y'all can load up. And we just left. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that would have been the first moment of conflict. And we went back to our uh, little hooch again. And we were hanging out there. Because at this point, we'd probably been up. We'd have been up for a long time at this Mm -hmm. point. Ended up going back and trying to get a little bit of sleep. A bunch of guys went in to go lay down. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to smoke a cigarette real quick. And we like dropped kit, everything. We're, I was just kind of out there in the cigarette, chatting it up with people like, what's going on? What, what's yeah, up with yeah. this? And at that moment, we, we were out there for maybe 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, short, a short amount of time. And one of our, our Intel Marine with our company ended up like running outside. And he's like, get everyone up. The Taliban has breached the gate or has breached the southern perimeter there's like and he said there was like 200 to 300 taliban fighters coming our way and so at that moment we ran inside and like all the squad leaders were getting everyone up quick as fast as we can and we started loading into bearcats to go out to the runway Mm -hmm. and so we all load up into bearcats and we're cramming them. Yeah, those things can hold like 12 people and i think at one point we fit this bearcat we were in we had gonzalez's squad and my entire squad shoved into this thing so we had like 20 people plus uh-huh. and this bearcat crammed very tight i know dustin was right at the door and i was like right behind him uh-huh. <laughs> we're all like kind of standing as best we can and we pulled out on the runway and doors open up and we start moving out and we look and all i see is you know it's through night vision and all i can see is a mass amount of people and then a bunch of like marines and army and whatnot online but like everyone's like in the prone so we start kind of filing in and getting in the prone next to people which was hard because there were so many people doing it at once that at that moment we lost a lot of squad integrity the squad got broken up very quickly uh, and we're in just different areas uh i had guys from that i i didn't even know that were like intertwined with me Mm -hmm. and some my squad were just off somewhere else you know and at that point it was this just crowd of people moving across, but there was no like 
you know, in our head, we have like, okay, 200 to 300 Taliban fighters coming our way and right. we don't know what's going on and machine gun fire starts happening. And it, from my perspective, it looked like, okay, we're getting shot at. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot of, you know, that fog of war to then find out that, oh no, it's our guys firing warning shots behind Not us. Right. But it, like I had guys down in the prone, people were talking like, people were talking about like seeing people were like do not shoot we had to tell a bunch of guys like do not shoot those are unarmed people but i mean no one shot but there, there was a lot of intensity there because no one knew where that machine gun fire was going it wasn't like a thing that was like hey we're going to be using warning shots you know warning shots are typically not a thing so, is it, so. this is it comes as a surprise that u.s forces are firing warning shots you weren't expecting that no, not at all. And like, definitely was that. That was the thing. Like the whole fog of war through night vision, you already can't mm -hmm. see it all that well. And it, they they were firing these warning shots at like the ground, if I remember correctly. Like, got it out in front, and it looked, you know, like we there was machine gun fire coming our direction. Just seeing the tracers and whatnot, it looked like it was coming our direction. So we just had everyone down and like trying to find a machine gunner <laughs> somewhere in this crowd, yeah. which was, a, you know, but there wasn't one. So it, it was, that was like the very first moment of conflict for sure. Got it. Like those two. Just a point of clarification. You've mentioned uh, the name Dustin. So that's Dustin Casey, who was part of your squad and also on the podcast last year talking about his experience. Dustin was one of your Marines, right? Yes, he was one of my best friends, you know, one of my Marines, we, we've been together since really we kind of joined the Marine Corps. And were you in fast together? Yes. We were in the same platoon, same squad in fast. Got it. <laughs> Matter of fact, it. like in fast, I at first was his team leader after our first deployment. And then yeah. midway through, he kind of became my team leader. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. it was a whole weird mess, but yeah, yeah. We've been together from the very beginning. So you're told originally there's this breach of a few hundred Taliban right? And these are not, these are not our friends. And then you get to the point of action. You're seeing what it's not Taliban, it's a bunch of civilians. How are you processing the shift in the situation and the incongruity between what you've been told? Hey, there's, you know, a company plus of bad guys on the way to no, this is a whole bunch of men, women and children who look absolutely desperate and terrified. I think the biggest thing like it, that was going through the head was trying to just ensure that no one shot. You know, that, that was the mm -hmm. biggest thing. Like, I remember running up and down the line, a bunch of people running up and down the line, like, do not shoot while everyone's in the prone. And then the orders came out to like, and then as they got closer, that's when we, it really took a little bit. Once they got closer, that's when we saw like, oh, they're all, they all have suitcases, things like that. Like, got it. Okay. The, this isn't, you know, an enemy force at all. But it was like trying to like, hey, do not shoot, but keep your eyes open because, you know, you hear about things like that where now all of a sudden there's a guy with a vest that's going to come out and blow all you up. So it was like, sure. keep your keep your eyes open, but like sure. do not shoot. And so it was kind of just more of a moment of waiting for like, OK, what's the follow on order? What's going mm -hmm. on here? Um, mm -hmm. Which the follow on order was, you know, stand up and we're pushing them back. But we're not allowing them to come any further. Yeah. And if you could get into that, I mean, what was the experience like of trying to push thousands of people off this runway how does a marine rifle company do that you've got women and children around what does that look like man i i don't know how like it it seems like a situation that 
should fail. I think in any, if if we look at, you know, just like any other sort of scenario, like there, there's, we're heavily outnumbered by, you know, civilians uh, alone. And so I think what it came down to was, it, it came down to being, you know, just having that initiative and every single Marine out there, every army person, there was like some soft people out there. It was weird. They, those guys are ghosts, but mm-hmm. they, everyone out there just kind of ended up having that initiative once the order came to push them back to like stand up. And it started off, you know, using like just being kind of like, hey, no, and like kind of walk towards them. Mm-hmm. But it, it ended up having to be like, okay, you just have to make yourself seem bigger than them. Like they, they are bigger, but you have to make yourself seem bigger. But I, I, I don't think there is a real answer to like how someone does that or how, how you get a unit to control that many people other than you have to be bigger than them which is you know kind of a weird thing to think about because it was like okay these people are already desperate They're, they you know aren't bigger than the guy who has a rifle in his hand and body mm-hmm. armor but mm-hmm. you are still very outnumbered you know you're, you're stuck controlling probably you know 30 40 people on your own as you're yeah. all online moving that way and trying to watch for any you know squirters from that try running through like so it just comes down to like having that initiative to be bigger maybe you know show a bigger bit of a bark and kind of get in their face and like catch anyone that's not doing it but almost instill more of the fear to them (laughs) that they already have and push them that way and i and i know at that point there was no like true like non-lethal or anything like that getting used but it was more just like you know, pushing your hand out and like holding them physically back because yeah, there was no warning shots getting fired at that point. It was because at that point we were all on the way. The Marines were all in the way of like machine gun fire. So there was no warning shots coming from rifles at that moment. It was just pushing them, (laughs) physically moving them across the runway. What do you remember most from that experience? What, you know, what, what's jumps out to you as Alpha 1-8, other elements on the ground are trying to contain and then push back this crowd that is much much larger than than the force trying to to contain and and push them back the thing that comes directly to mind is trying to find some sort of spot in this crowd movement the entire company was all just kind of mixed matched at this point and it was like because people were having to move people to a different area where you know like hey we need to control this spot and so trying to move people around but then like getting there and actually moving them one of the things that pops my mind the most is i remember like as we're pushing it wasn't hard like people were relatively compliant with it mm-hmm. they, i mean they, they were scared and they were crying and they were grabbing on you but you know you just kind of had to numb your brain to the fact that like these people are desperate and move them but i remember there was a family uh it was a younger guy probably 20s you know, younger guy mm-hmm. with his probably wife, you know, given the culture, it was probably his wife and they had a baby and his wife just kept on grabbing onto me and like trying to tell me to, you know, like, Hey, we have a child, you know, things like that. And he's holding, um, holding probably like a three-year-old kid yeah. and it's like pushing, you know, this family back, but they were bawling. That is something like, I don't really remember most of the other things. But it, I remember this family so much because they were screaming and crying. It, but, you know, we had a mission and I think mission had to take priority in any situation. Mission has to take priority over like your personal feelings of what's going on. Yeah. And eventually the NSU National Strike Unit, Afghan SOF, offers to help clear the airfield of 
of civilians. Are you there for that part? And if so, what, what do you remember of, of their clearing efforts? Okay, yeah. So when they got involved that night, we ended up moving them all the way back to the terminal. We had them all the way back to the terminal and it was kind of just holding them in one spot in a massive sardine can of people mm-hmm. and people started laying out sea wire to, you know, try preventing them from moving. But then it came down to, like, it, it wasn't that night that the NSU got involved. It it was after multiple like stormings of our sea wire where they were running like the footage and stuff of the people running next to the planes. Like we had any planes weren't even taking off that night. It, we had to get the runway cleared. And it was, all those videos of like the Afghan people running during the day, that was another whole mess. But it was after that kind of ended up becoming a thing that we just couldn't control because we did it like four or five times. Yeah. Running all the way across the runway, pushing them all the way back. They'd break through, running across the runway, pushing them back. So it kind of became this like giving up effort from us where the NSU came through. And I was not there for it when it happened. I do remember hearing a lot about it but i yeah i was not there for when it happened but i do know that they did it by some undoctrined means yeah i think i mean there is a definite moment of like recognizing like the good old duality of man and all of the people there where it's like they are so desperate that you know that they're gonna do whatever they can and if it means that they die trying to get there you know Mm -hmm. I, i it was a even you know in america you hear people that talk about the military they don't really understand the military and now you can uh, you know really put it in perspective these people don't know anything about the american military really other than the fact that we had been there for 20 years mm-hmm. but like not in this situation where it's like oh we're supposed to be trying to help you evacuate but you're not like we can't just do this by you storming the airfield that's yeah. not how that works like i said wasn't there for it but i remember hearing all about it and yeah it was apparently a bit of a mess yeah. Soon after the civilians are dispersed, the Taliban offer or begin to work with the coalition forces to facilitate the evacuation. What do you recall about being told about the Taliban offering their assistance or that there would be some partnering involved? What did that cooperation look like? So by the time I found out about the Taliban working with us, we were already in gate operations. My squad and, well, our platoon, I guess, was currently outside of Northgate and trying to control the crowd there. Mm-hmm. And midway through that, a we started seeing like from way in the back of the crowd, the crowd was like kind of splitting up. You know, we can't see over everyone, but we see it kind of splitting up. And so people start like kind of getting kind of ready for what's going on. And there's a there was a truck pulling through people like not running through them but like going very slowly but coming straight at Northgate, and the whole crowd was kind of separating around the truck and i remember i ended up getting my rifle up we had a bunch of us ended up getting our rifles up and we went towards this truck got to the truck and i was at the driver's side door and there's a guy driving it very you know picturesque taliban from like if you looked up the taliban on google you could this is what this guy looked like yeah and so I opened the door and I put my muzzle on his chest and was like, get out of the truck. And then as I'm doing that, I noticed that he has an AK in the in passenger seat and my weapon went off safe. It was like, we're about to shoot this guy. Yeah. And right at that moment, we started getting yelled at from behind. I'm sorry. The guy keeps on saying like, no, no, I'm Taliban. <laughs> so I was like, okay, man, like 
I don't know why you're telling me this. Like that this gives me a reason. Yeah, yeah, this gives you. me a reason to shoot you. You're right, the right, Taliban. Right, right, right. And our XO from behind starts yelling like, "No, do not shoot!" Like, just get him to turn around. I remember like looking back and being like, "What?" <laughs> like, yeah. kind of yelling like, "What, sir?" And he's like, "They're okay." <laughs> it was a very confusing moment, sure. and we just kind of let him get back in his truck with his AK and ground guided him out of the gate area. Like yeah. we had guys ground guiding him. And at that moment it was like, that's when I walked back and I was, I was pretty pissed. Uh, you know, like what, what do you mean? Like they're on our side, they're good. And it kind of got broken down Barney style to me that, Oh, we're working with the Taliban now. And it was, uh, it was definitely a bit of a shock because then it had to be told to you know i had to go tell other guys and they were all like what do you mean <laughs> uh, we're, yeah we're taliban and how did you break that news to your guys pretty much just like that man <laughs> i just kind of yeah. walked up and i was like hey we're working with the taliban and they all were like you know everyone was pissed e- every single person out there was pissed from you know higher to us everyone was pissed that we're now working with the taliban but it was like, well, that's the orders, you know, we're mm-hmm. going to follow them. But we didn't, on Northgate, we really didn't have much Taliban interaction. They weren't side by side with us like they were at, you know, some of the other gates I know. They weren't with us very often. At first, because we were working a lot with the NSU uh, or whatever they were called. I don't, I've heard so many acronyms for them. But, sure, sure. but yeah, we were working kind of more with them. But then occasionally, like, there'd be like one Taliban fighter that would like just kind of show up and start beating people with an, his AK, but then they just, at one point just kind of disappeared. So from my understanding, they were further outside of Northgate and kind of like trying to process the people coming towards us. I, I don't it. know, how, but I never saw them really after that. Got it. You mentioned Northgate a few times and doing gate operations. Could you walk us through what gate operations look like? What was that process like? What are you doing as a squad leader during these operations? The squad leader billet was still, you know, a thing, but it was more just kind of controlling where we were going and when we were going. Like it was kind of that fighter leader, you know, we we were, all the squad leaders were still doing the job with, you know, down to the, you know, just a normal rifleman. But Mm -hmm. it it came down to the gate operations worked on a company level. We would have rotations. There was a kind of outer perimeter where people were up on like berms kind of watching over the crowd there was lots of like different little posts essentially then you had a search area which kind of became a search slash rest area because you'd only have to have you know so many people doing like personnel searches and really Mm -hmm. it was more searching the bags because all the people that were coming in had already been like kind of vetted by department of state personnel or something Mm -hmm. and so you just kind of open their bags up dump them make sure they weren't coming in with anything that they shouldn't a lot of you know a lot of like drugs things like that you were just thrown away and then you had the guys that were actually on the gate or outside the gate kind of controlling the crowd out there and that was all broken down into platoons so it was like one platoon doing each thing at a time got it but yeah as far as like what a squad leader was doing it was more just like okay hey you're gonna be here you know like part of the search area we were controlling what got labeled the shit out gate or the shit gate which was essentially like people that weren't good to go by the department of state you mm-hmm. had send them back out so that was part of like the search area rotation and they would just kind of you'd choose what marines were going where at what time and that's how it kind of went what were some of the challenges you faced or tough decisions you made during this time the toughest decisions at that moment while we were doing just normal gate operations was like 
trying to be fair to certain guys. Like, I mean, we, we had one DM in my squad and that's a pretty big asset. So we had him up on top of a roof with a machine gunner kind of watching over the crowd just in case. And, and like there, there were certain people that it was like hard to get a rest cycle because they were kind of needed to be in yeah, that position yeah. at that time. They had different training than some of the other guys. So that, that was kind of rough. Uh, you know, it was like, I felt like I was exhausting a lot of the Marines or, or some some specific Marines, but it, I needed them to be somewhere. And so that, that was a bit of a tough thing, uh, actually trying to balance out a rest cycle for certain guys, because it, at that point we were up for, you know, so long, you know, we, there, right, right. there wasn't much sleep. And so it was like trying to balance that out, trying to ensure that guys are like properly searching and not getting lazy. Uh, when we were doing the searching operations, the outer perimeter wasn't really ever an issue because they were putting buddy pairs up on the thing. So they were just kept on kind of kept each other awake, but then like controlling the actual, as far as the gate goes, when it came to the crowd control aspect, I mean, that one was tough just because like everybody out there, you know, ha has their own morals and it kind of comes down to like, all right, man, like there's going to be certain things that you get up. You, you had to keep people aggressive because we tried for a very long time to be kind of more of the passive, like, Hey, just listen. But the crowds did not listen that way. Uh, they just wouldn't and so at a certain point it became like you you have to be aggressive with these people uh they aren't listening any other way so sometimes you know you gotta pull out the belt and you know spank the kid and it was a lot of people were bothered by that i think but it was like trying to keep them that way like it, when it even when it came down to like dude i don't really care you just have to do this right now like this is what needs to be done and so it was, that, that was definitely tough trying to make sure that that kind of stuff happened so when you say people were bothered by, you know, the order or, or need to be aggressive, are, are these Marine, you know, your Marines, other Marines saying, hey, this is, it's really tough to have to do this to men, women, children, you know, they're not listening and we have to have some degree of order. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I, especially at first. I mean, once everyone kind of caught on to sure. things like, and kind of saw that there's, a, I think, a big changing moment for everyone out there where it was like, okay, now these people are from a different culture, things like that. Like, they're, you know, they're not listening to you telling them what to do. Like, so you kind of have to force it upon them. And I think one of the biggest changing moments out there was, which I think almost everyone at that, that was out manning the gate at the time saw it. But there was, we had um, the engineers got out there and put up a bunch of sea wire, kind of holding back the crowd, giving us a little bit of a, you know, breathing space between the crowd and us. Right. And at one point, like there was a kid kind of up close to the sea wire. I'm sorry, razor wire. It was not sea wire. It was razor wire. And there was a kid pretty up close to it. And like the kid got kind of mauled by the crowd to the point where he like fell into the razor wire and he got his head stuck like some razor wire got stuck in the top of his head and at that moment i think it was like people realized that like oh these people aren't really even cognizant about their, their own children out here so you've got to like protect them with a firm fist you know mm -hmm. and i think after that moment it kind of everyone's kind of got on board with like this is how we're having to protect you know and it's yeah. it's as shitty as it is it's how it had to happen you mentioned the the role of exhaustion. I was wondering if you could just talk a little more about that. I mean, you you guys have been going 
hard for most of the time up to this point. You'd mentioned at some points early on, you get a little rest, but how as a squad leader are you keeping tabs on your guys, combating fatigue, combating fatigue yourself, right? You're you've got to be exhausted at this point and during gate operations. So what does that look like for your time at HKIA trying to grapple with this ever-present challenge of, of fatigue, both your own fatigue and the fatigue of the Marines in your squad? As far as my fatigue went, it kind of came down to like, again, it comes down to that more of a, you know, eating last mentality uh, that I think any leader should have. I think that's a thing. Like, I think if you're looking out for yourself, you're not looking out for your Marines. Uh, so it came down, like, that's kind of how I combated it. It was like, all right, well, I need to make sure these guys are good. But trying to combat theirs, like, there wasn't, like, people were tired, but it wasn't, like, getting shown. Like, you mm-hmm. see on, you know, your field ops where people are being, get lazy and stuff. It, I, I think there was a sense of purpose and a sense of you know like mission importance that it didn't get shown too much Mm -hmm. and so it came down to like man there were a lot of guys would like volunteer to go back out and like hey get them some rest you know so it it became pretty easy but it it was as far as like combating it i mean it literally comes down to just walking up and asking and like kind of just asking and seeing how guys are acting and if you know they're acting super tired then it's like all right well i'm gonna pull you and you know move someone else out there and they'll go out and get 30 minutes of sleep or something and so it just comes down to like actually being cognizant of every single one of your marines and like understanding their personality and you sure. know, seeing if there's something going on with that but yeah know, it sounds like yeah. talking to each one and, and getting a sense of how aware are they right now or you know, how's their speech? Do they seem like they're they're put together right now, or do they do they need to be taken offline and given a chance to rest? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier this this gate that you were put on, the squad was put on, where rejected civilians, people who weren't going to be allowed to fly out, were were sent through. What was that process like? What do you remember of? seeing your Marines have to bring rejected civilians back through this gate and, you know, how are they dealing with it? How are you? I mean, most of that wasn't super, super hard on like the mentality at all. Uh, most of it there. I, I think that one bothered for some reason, the, that gate bothered me more so than it bothered a lot of other people, but it, most of it wasn't super hard. Cause like a lot of these people, that were getting sent out were also not being like very compliant you know it was like the bad seeds kind of uh, mm-hmm. for, for most of them so it wasn't super hard like all right let's go and you just walk them out and send them on out mm-hmm. the ones that definitely i think bothered me more and i i don't remember really hearing much of a bothers from like the guys uh from some of my marines at the time but and maybe that's just me just not remembering or I don't even remember talking to him about it, which was, you know, I think a failure on my end. But I, I think, you know, one of the m- ones or some of them that stand out the most are like, you know, when you're I, I watched us, we, me, Dustin and one of our other Marines ended up at one point having to walk out at, like an old lady with like two little girls, probably like a grandma and two grandchildren type thing. And yeah. like uh, they they were not having it you know they weren't having walking out and so then it was like no you gotta go like but it, 
you know, that, that that's it's tough uh, at times seeing, you know, like I had no issue sending out the men, really, like because they were typically, you know, kind of the bad seeds of the crowd. But when you're walking out like children, I think that one's a little bit of a, a tough spot for sure. Yeah. How did you lead your team in the face of so much confusion, ambiguity, danger? Do you find yourself relying on on concepts, tools from MCDP1, from MCDP1-3, things like intent, implicit communication, services and gaps? Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I think the actual leading aspect out there was one of the more easy situations as far as like this is the mission uh once it got said i think almost every marine out there did kind of you know in their own way show those characteristics of like everyone got the intent uh i mean and it, that, that was the reality like we we'd go tell them like this is the intent of what we're doing mm-hmm. but then like just them having the, their own initiative to go handle things and getting things done it, it made it very easy like all everyone out there showed a I am still to this day very, very impressed by not only my Marines, but everyone out there that did anything because there wasn't, you know, I, I did. I can't think of a moment where it was like I was actually having to like, you have to go do this. It was like, hey, this is what we need to get done. And they would just go do it. And they would do it well. So yeah. I, I think that as far as that kind of leadership, it was it was very easy to do. Got it. Could you talk about your your leadership at HKIA, your you know, your platoon commander, your company commander? Of course, they're you know, platoon commanders working with other squads, other assets, company commanders working with with other platoons, other assets. What do you recall seeing of of them? What did they provide to you, your squad? How did they lead? If he listens to this, I don't want this to come up, but I but I was very, very surprised by our uh platoon commander. I mean, I had a lot of doubts on my platoon commanders throughout the deployment. Towards the end, once we like toward, once we started doing like different exercises and stuff, I, I gained a lot more like faith and confidence. But once we got out there, I was very very impressed by just how he handled things. Uh, I mean, if anyone out there didn't need to show like a true fighter leader concept, I would say it was like higher officers, right? Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they they have to deal with other things, you know, like the planning and you know, like what's what it intent. But he was doing all of that plus being out there on the ground with like the riflemen and, and i would say the same thing with company commander good old major mcgurry he, mm-hmm. he he was doing the exact same thing like they weren't they were setting leading by example and i think that helped out a ton all the way around and it absolutely was something new to me to see because you know there, there's the like jokes on the enlisted side where it's like you know oh, i'm not an officer i worked for a living and so mm-hmm. you know but no it wasn't at all they were absolutely like getting after it just like every single other person and so yeah i have nothing negative or anything you know that that, that, nothing but positive to say about higher up and going to higher enlisted you know higher officers like every single person out there including our battalion commander you know like Mm -hmm. everyone was doing it it was full-on fighter leader concept so it sounds like the the leaders in your company or your battalion from your perspective were providing the sort of leadership, the sort of support that you wanted and needed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. According to CENTCOM's report on the Abbeygate bombing, Northeast and Abbeygate's closed from 20 to 22 August. Do you recall what the squad was doing during this time? So you're not really doing gate operations. Are you sitting in a defensive position trying to get rest? So with the shutdown of the gates, 
it became like the gate didn't get completely like shut down. Like you, you were in okay. anyone that was on the gate, like rotation essentially was now just in a defensive position. They shut the gates, big metal gates, and people would stand up outside and just kind of watch the crowd. So it wasn't like there was nothing happening. Got it. Same thing with like the shit out gate. All that gate was, it was a chain link fence with a bicycle lock holding mm-hmm. it shut. So we had to have people over there to make sure things was going. So it was definitely more of a defensive operation. The rest cycle came down to like the searching of personnel because there were no personnel getting searched at that point. So that became a very easy way to get like rest. But the whole thing just became a big defensive operation versus, you know, actual gate operations versus and, like ECPs, things like that. Got it. Got it. Were you put on any other gate during this time? Did you go to Eastgate or did you work exclusively at Northgate? No, our platoon ex- worked exclusively at Northgate. I, mean, I, I never even saw Eastgate. I saw it from a distance at one point, but yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't like there was... Yeah, no, we, we worked pretty much exclusively at Northgate. And to correct myself from earlier... Uh, as well as like the rest cycle we did there was the, this long road running the northern perimeter of hki and so we did have to have that that became that that was a thing from the very beginning but there was we'd post guys up on this road because there was an actual like hole in the wall further up that people could come through essentially but we had yeah. guys posted up on like a defensive position over there the whole time like machine gun squad like yeah, in case anything did go wild but yeah no, it, as far as like once it closed down and whatnot it just became a big defensive operation Got it. Got it. While you were at Northgate, whether doing gate operations or conducting defensive operations, were there any instances of fire from the Taliban, ISIS? You know, not, not that you'd really maybe be able to to tell the difference. I know there was certainly a, a VBID threat, mortar threat, but do you recall any any instances of, of gunfire exchange or or your positions being hit? No, not while our company was out there. I don't recall any like actual gunfire happening, uh, especially not directed at us. I don't remember. I think at one point we ended up replacing Bravo Company, mm-hmm. and they had mentioned that they took some sort of like sniper fire from some skyscraper to the mm-hmm. north side of Northgate, further north. And so that became like the, those like apartment complexes what they kind of looked like became a big area of like okay we need to watch here but i don't think we ever once took a shot while we were out there by 25 august abbeygate is the only gate operating in the muse sector what are you doing the next day the day of the bombing 26 august how if at all do you respond to the abbeygate bombing my squad was on the defensive, like on the gate, but kind of like just looking out over actual North Gate uh, at the time that it happened. And I don't remember ever hearing, like a lot of people mentioned hearing the explosion. I don't remember ever hearing it. Yeah, I was standing kind of on that defensive perimeter and I swapped out with the Marine and was cramming some food real quick, taking a little bit of a sit down and company commander, platoon commander came up and they were like, hey, we need to decrease the amount of people on this gate. And I was like, okay, no issue. And so we went down to, I think I only had a fire team up there with me. So I pulled everyone else from my squad outside of the gate area. Cause it was a, it was two gates essentially. And mm-hmm. most of the time we just kind of hung out in one area and I pulled them all the way back to the other end. Uh, so it was just me and a fire team up there with my platoon commander and our company, well, weapons um, platoon sergeant at the time, but now current company gunny of one eight uh alpha company but we were up there 
and we were there for a while and then eventually it became I kept on getting told that there was, you know, another more um, VBID threats, which we had had the entire time. There was constant information about VBIDs and like different vehicles that we were all supposed to keep an eye on. All of them were like, oh, there's, you know, some white car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's every car out here. So that right, doesn't help right. at all. Yeah. Uh, but so that the VBID threat wasn't really a big thing at first. And then Abigate got hit by an IED. So we continued manning our like fire team and me and you know it was like six of us up on the gate or not even at the gate completely we had like two guys at the gate and the rest of us were kind of just below Mm -hmm. and then our battalion gunner ended up coming up and he was like we need less people here like right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it ended up becoming me my platoon commander and our weapons platoon commander all up there and it was just us three. And I think uh, there was one other person. It was another platoon commander from, uh, um, oh, it was the weapons platoon commander as well. So it was just us four up there. And at that point, we're just watching the crowd. We're all standing up, just watching the crowd. And I want to say it was Major McGurry came up and he's like, hey, y'all need to get like behind the gate. And we all were arguing that well, that's taking our eyes off this crowd. Like that doesn't help much. And mm-hmm. and it got explained that there was cameras watching it and that we just need to be behind the gate, but we need to still stay in this area. Mm-hmm. And my entire squad is out of the area at this point, completely out of the area. I have them all sitting down like probably hundred meters back, you know, pretty far away from the gate. Yeah. And it was us four. And then it shrunk to me. Well, then at one point our battalion gunner came up again and he told us, hey y'all need to move away from this and we got told that there was a like a tanker truck v-bid like inbound and we all back out of that area and we go to behind the second gate essentially that's there and it was me and the weapons um, platoon sergeant just kind of standing there and we were kind of sitting there and he's uh he's an older dude been all over the middle east and he proceeds to start telling me like war stories and stuff And he starts to ask, you know, he, I mean, he definitely eased my mind a lot mm-hmm. uh, in a weird way. I, I mean, we were sitting there and one of the first thing he said, he's like, so Champlin, you ready to die or something? Oh. And I, I don't know why that eased my mind, but it did. Mm-hmm. It was like, I mean, yeah, we're here. So if it happens, like it's a tanker truck, you know, we're not doing anything about that. Like yeah. if a tanker truck comes rams his gate, it's not just us dead. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it became this thing. And then, ROEs changed pretty quickly. ROEs became now like, if you see anyone even like try getting over the gate, we're just shooting them mm-hmm. like on target. Like it, so the ROEs became very, very relaxed. Where it's like, if they come anywhere past this area, like one area, they're fish in a barrel, just shoot them. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there and this is the hardest moment for me probably from that. But at one point my platoon commander ended up coming up and he's like, Champlin, you can't be here. We need you. You need to go grab a Marine to stand here. And I argued it for a little while. Remember trying arguing it. And because it was like, I I didn't want to put a guy right there to have him get blown up by a tanker truck. But it became, you know, kind of a, hey, no, you're doing this. And so I ended up walking back to the squad and ended up asking for one. And had to take him up there to the gate. And he's like, so what are we doing here? And I was like, well, man, you're going to sit here. If someone kind of pops over, you're good to shoot him. 
and he's like, okay, so why are we here? And I explained that, well, we're waiting for a tanker truck, a B-bid to come up and, you know, hit. And then I went back to the squad, you know, hundred meters away from that. And we just kind of sat there for a long while. And I remember I kept on asking my platoon commanders, like, like hey, I think you need the rest cycle. Cause I, I didn't want them there. I didn't want anyone in our squad right there. You know, if it was going to happen, I'd rather it be me than any of them. But that was my pure emotional thing. I think mission, if we look at the mission, you know, and that's, that, that's the reality is he, him and a few other people and my platoon sergeant ended up explaining to me that, you know, I do hold a billet and I need to be there to be able to, you know, control the squad if, if that does happen. But yeah, emotionally, it was, it, that, that was one of the toughest moments for me, probably in all of it. It was like a lot of being out there felt like, even with Afghani people, it felt like we were playing God. And mm-hmm. no other point did I feel like I was more playing God than taking a guy to go stand him in a place where he's supposed to die. You know, like that, that's the reality of that position is like, you're going to die if this bomb goes off. So there was, there was a strong belief, strong expectation that a large V bid was going to come through that, that area and try to detonate itself. Is that right? Yeah. That from what I remember, absolutely. I think it was pretty well hit. Like, yeah, I mean, they had everyone pulling back for a possible V bid. It, it wasn't supposed to be just a V bid. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was supposed to be like, a organized attack of like V-bid followed by machine gun fire, followed like in a, a straight up attack on Northgate. Oh, and yeah, so I mean, it, that that was the belief that came out and thank God nothing did happen, but yeah. And the platoon commander's rationale for taking you off the line, having you find somebody else to take your place, if, if I'm hearing correctly, is he wants you to be ready to fight the squad should something happen rather than you you know, potentially being involved in the, in the, the VBID blast, getting killed, wounded, incapacitated. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. What was your reaction to hearing about the Abbey gate bombing? How did you take uh, that? Uh, at first I, it was more of a, I don't know. It, it was a weird feeling. I, I, when I first heard about it, it, kind of just went over my mind it wasn't like it hit me immediately uh it was like well it happened i i think what helped that is i didn't think that i knew anyone out there uh because i knew 2-1 was mostly standing abigate and not anything against 2-1 but you know i i didn't know him so yeah it it was like i think that's why it just kind of went over my head and it was like well because we we at first didn't hear about any you know, KIAs. We 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 hadn't heard about anyone being injured. Like, and that was one of the first questions I was asked. It was like, did we lose any Marines? Like, what what's going on? And they were like, we don't know. And then it slowly became this thing where it was like, okay, there's three confirmed KIA, and then it became, you know, oh, there's ten. Now mm-hmm. it, it just slowly increased, and and that's when it definitely started hitting a little bit more uh, close to home. But at the time, while we were doing like where we were at. I didn't, I I just don't think I had time to reflect, I guess. It it wasn't, it was like on my mind, a tanker truck IED coming with a organized attack on our place. So it wasn't like, it just, it wasn't immediately on my mind. What was your squad doing after 26 August and before it departed from HKI? What did, what did those last few days look like for for you and your squad? So once we got relieved on Northgate, after like the company got relieved on Northgate after the bombing, we ended up 
going back to our little hooch and I remember us getting like a good amount of sleep. We got very, we, I got, we got a lot of sleep and in the middle of it, one of our other squad leaders, one of my other best friends, Cam, he ended up coming in and he pulled me out and explained to me that our friend Hunter was part of the bombing and he died, which that was a, you know, it was, it was a rough moment, but I mean, we weren't doing anything. It was like, we were just kind of sitting back there and that's when like the whole bombing really hit me was finding out that, Oh, Hunter and then Sanchez ended up being part of that blast. Cause they, they were both, I mean, Hunter went to ITB with me. Like we, we were pretty close. He was in fast, not in our platoon, but like we, me and him were, yeah. like, he was a good friend of mine. And so that hit pretty hard, but we ended up just kind of standing there. I ended up getting very sick. I know that, uh, that there was something that people were calling like the Afghan sickness. I don't know what it was. It probably some sort of VGE. I don't know, but I got super sick where, where I was thrown up and in the bathroom constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did, I know the, the day that they did the putting the bodies on the planes, it was like a ceremony. So like a bunch of people ended up going out, like the entire platoon, the whole company was out there and I was on the toilet cause I was very sick. <laughs> but yeah. from most of that, it was like a very chill day. After the, that, um, after the 26th, I want to say the 27th was pretty relaxed. There wasn't much going on. And then we ended up manning kind of the, because there were still Afghan people that need to get evacuated from like the Southern Comfort area, all types of areas out there. But we ended up going out and essentially searching bags again for people to get on. It was the final search of uh, their bags before they could like get on planes and like really start like getting their whole that whole processing thing done but that became a whole mess too because at some point it got told that like okay they're no longer allowed to take their luggage like and they handed us like walmart bags you know like little plastic bags and like anything they can fit in this is what they can take people were like walking up with their like two suitcases and it was like all right well here's a plastic bag fill what you can in there everything else is going to get left but that, that's what we did for the last like two days. I mean, that's really all we were doing is sitting there and just kind of helping process people. After everyone was processed, they did have the infamous cleaning of HKIA happen. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about that if you remember anything? Yeah. I mean, it came down to like, it was almost a police call. It was weird. Like it was like grabbing the clothes and stuff that all got dumped, things like that. And just like, we were putting them in like piles essentially uh, to have like, to make it organized, like cleaning off the roads and stuff like that. It wasn't, I, mean, I know just prior to that, there was a lot of destruction happening. I didn't participate. I don't think our platoon or even company really participated in the destruction. I could be wrong there, but I know our, I don't think our platoon ever participated in any of like, uh, we need to destroy things. Uh, but I know that a lot of that was happening, but then it was like, you know, oh, it, the, all this destruction happened. Now you got to pretty it up, <laughs> you know, like make it pretty mm-hmm. destruction. So it was like, it, it became like us out there with like sh- little shovels and shoveling uh, like clothes that had been trampled on whatnot off the ground and like moving them into big piles. What, what was your response to getting tasked to do that? What about your, your squad? <laughs> I mean, we were all just kind of bitching about it. Like that's really what it was. I mean, we were doing it, but we were all like, just kind of bitching about it everyone was bitching about it but it had to you know it had to get done because it was orders from higher and so Mm -hmm. but everyone was just kind of frustrated like really like we got you know america had been you know just gotten attacked at abbey gate and now we're cleaning up 
mm-hmm. before we leave. It, it just didn't make any sense really to us. Yeah. I mean, at all. And I, I still don't think it makes very much sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, e- even from like, you know, the, like there, I don't remember who, but I know there's been talk of like other interviewers have asked like main news outlets about it. And the mm-hmm. response is like, well, we were, we didn't have the standard set. And it's like, there was no standard out there, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like, it, it just doesn't, it still to this day doesn't make any sense that we had yeah. to go do that. Yeah. After you depart HKIA, you head to Kuwait, the battalions there. What did you observe in your squad mates, platoon mates, Marines, and in, in the rest of the company of the battalion? How are the Marines dealing with what they had seen and done? How are you coping with what you'd seen and done? I think when we first got there, everyone just kind of coped by getting some good food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of eating, uh, yeah. but everyone was kind of stuck to themselves uh, at first. And like everyone kind of stuck to themselves, uh, in- including me, uh, including like the squad leaders where we were all back in the same rooms that we were in, like in the same room, we didn't really talk much to each other. It was very keeping to ourselves. And I, I, I think that you know if you asked any of anyone at that moment they'd be like oh yeah i'm fine but i think there was definitely like now it was all catching up the reality was all hitting i had a few conversations with a few people you know where it was like okay you know a little venting session like late night venting sessions but it was nothing like yeah i think everyone seemed a little bit bothered there i mean there was a lot of i think tough guy you know act because we did, we had to do like little exercises where it was like, okay, we're pulling the platoon together and like just breaking it down. And it was like the whole platoon. And there was a lot of, you know, tough guy act, but you could see in like actual personality and things like that, like a change where I, I think, you know, there, there was some bother to a lot of people. Yeah. What advice would you give future fire team leaders, squad leaders on, on talking with and helping their Marines, supporting their Marines? after mission as intense as the HKI evacuation? Man, I think it comes down to like immediately after something like that, right? Yeah, you're still a billet holder, but I think you also need to like be able to get down and like actually just kind of row it out with someone, you know, like talk Mm -hmm. to them and like, you know, because right after, especially if there's not like a follow-on mission, you know, I think Mm -hmm. if, if, I think if there was a follow-on mission, then it's a little bit different where you have to continue holding that position but there's no direct follow-on mission it's like that's a moment that you can actually sit down and like just talk to someone without it being like oh i'm talking to my squad leader like talk to them as a human being rather than as a marine and like Mm -hmm. discuss because i mean that that kind of stuff is what saves lives i remember me and one of the other squad leaders got sent to like a you know suicide intervention course while we were there and i think that like as I've had to do that course like three times. And as silly as the course may seem, I think it is a very helpful course mm-hmm. to things like that, where you're like, because it, you, you do catch things that you may not think about where it's like, okay, just a shift in personality. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, being as any leader, fire team, squad leader, really just even a, a leader in it as a rifleman, you know, yeah. I think something that is very important is like understanding who you're working with you know, whether it be Marine Corps or anywhere, understanding who you're working with and like knowing them as a person rather than just like a coworker. Right. Um, that way 
you can see a change in personality, a change in certain things, and you can you you can actually like talk about that. And I I think that's the biggest thing, is there's a stigma to like not talk, and sometimes I think it needs to be kind of forced out of someone. Mm-hmm. What was it like returning to Camp Lejeune? What do you remember of that experience? It was weird. We got back and we had a lot of days off. We, we were mm-hmm. off for a lot. I had my family come out. My, my mom and dad came out to come see us and we rented like an Airbnb. Yeah. And I think that was like, even in, it, it's weird, but even in Kuwait, like I had talked about a lot of like the things that like had bothered me, but then talking to my parents, like while we were in this Airbnb, I talked to them a lot about like certain things that had bothered me but it was it was weird because like them being my parents obviously they were very understanding but then it was like talking to other people whether it be on camp lejeune or you know just like other friends from around the area it's like yeah. it's not something that gets understood especially with i think now it, the whole mission has been a little bit more understood but i still think it's a pretty misunderstood mission because it was like neo oh it's just an evacuation and I don't think people tr- even now truly understand like that it wasn't like, oh, we're just pulling people out like casually, you know, it, mm-hmm. that it was overall, you know, it, we can call it a neo, but it was a, in, a, in a way, in its own sense, a combat mission. Like mm-hmm. there, I mean, if you're using non-lethal, you're, you're fist fighting people, you know, things like that. It, it, in a way, it is a combat mission with a neo as like the overall broad thing. And so... I think there was a lot of misunderstanding of it. You know, people didn't, mm. the, people from other units, things like that, didn't ever believe in the, like, there were people that didn't believe that we had shot those guys on the airfield the first mm-hmm. day. Like, it, that, a lot of that was just not believed. Why do you think that was the case? Why, why do you think <laughs> there was misunderstanding or just plain disbelief? I don't know, uh, because I mean that was covered. That, so that that's the weird thing. It's like that was covered on major news outlets. That like, oh, so some fighters got shot. But I I think maybe one of the things is like, you know, there hasn't been that for a long time. At that point, I mean, years before, since the last like, uh, unless you're talking about like you know soft units and stuff. But like, uh, from a normal infantry battalion, that hadn't happened for a long time since like really Syria, I want to say I could be wrong there, but it, it hadn't happened for a pretty long time. And so I, I think maybe that was a thing where it's like, oh yeah, I'm sure you did. But yeah, people just were very, didn't really believe very mm. much. And I think that was another tough thing. It was like, you know, you'd talk to people and you'd share something. And then the people that did believe that it became tough too, because you'd, you'd try opening up, or at least I did. I know some people didn't, but I'd open up and I'd explain like these kind of things happen. And a lot of people will talk on like, oh man, that's awesome. You guys could go do something like that. And I, you know, and I, I think I understand that because that's exactly why anyone joins like, you know, the infantry or the Marine Corps is like mm-hmm. to go do a mission. But hearing like, oh, that's awesome. Or, that's cool. It's kind of a weird thing to hear yeah. <laughs> when, when you're bothered mentally by something. So yeah, you probably didn't find it so awesome or cool in the thick of it or reflecting back on it. It, yeah. You know, by all accounts, everyone I've talked to and what my research, my reading has shown is it was uh, terribly chaotic. It was dirty business. It was heart wrenching at many times and not cool. I wouldn't describe it as as cool or something uh, something that you'd in, you'd enjoy or yeah, cool is not the word you would use to describe what you went through and what you saw. 
Yeah. What were the most frustrating aspects of your mission at, at HKI and the converse? What were the most rewarding? Frustrating, I think, was just the mission overall. Like throughout this, I've talked about some of the big points that like were frustrating to me, you know, having to do move one of my Marines up there and like having to deal with women and children. That that was a very frustrating. And if we're talking about like just purely irritating me, I, I think military age males were very very frustrating out there because they just didn't listen they so that was a big frustration point of the mission but rewarding wise i mean also just kind of the mission i think watching the actions of a squad that at one point i thought was you know unprepared and them do something that like i wouldn't expect out of it you know i i and really not just a squad but like a battalion like the marine corps pulling something off like that i think is a very rewarding thing just watching like growth as like from you know 19 year old 20 year old guys it was a pretty impressive thing to watch and i think that mm -hmm. is very rewarding did you have any interactions with the muse female search team and, and if so how did those interactions go i didn't work like while they were doing their searches i didn't ever work directly with them really i i kind of did at one point we did some searching operations and there, you know, like, uh, Nicole G she was over there with us when we were doing the searching operations at one point, mm -hmm. but I knew a lot of people from the Mew that were, were on the search team. Uh, I mean, our corpsman before, like we went to Afghanistan was, she was our platoon corpsman and then she ended up not being our platoon corpsman, but she, so she was part of the search team and I have nothing like to think about guys and we're not searching any women. And there was a lot of women that got evacuated. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very impressive to think about how many people got searched and how hard they would have had to have worked the entire time because th there was much less of them on that search team, a, a, a mm -hmm. very small portion. And they were covering every female that came in and out of that base. Mm -hmm. So I think that is an absolutely impressive thing to think about. Yeah, they, they're a bunch of badasses. So the Marines at HKIA, many of them brought their personal cell phones with them, and some had access to personal computers, had access to the internet, they're communicating with friends and family back home. What influence do you think this had on the Marines during the evacuation? Did it affect morale, discipline? Did it affect the abilities of, of Marines to get the job done? They had this line back to their their friends and family do you see that as potentially being a distraction or something that negatively affected the course of operations i think it absolutely definitely could have affected it negatively i don't think it did mm -hmm. um i think that pretty much everyone was pretty disciplined with it i mean it never whenever it came like i never saw anyone on their phone ever unless it was like back in the hooch i mm -hmm. mean and I, i'm sure people had them because I've seen pictures and whatnot, but I have not, I, I, I can't think of a time that someone was like, you know, oh, on Facebook or something while they were up the gate, yeah. you know? So I think it definitely could have negatively affected the mission if people were being undisciplined with them. That being said, I don't agree that we should have had them. And this comes from me who, it also helped me out a ton because after the bombing, I got blown up by Dustin's family. I got blown up by family of a lot of my friends mm -hmm. asking if we were, you know, is Dustin okay? Or is am I okay? Things like that. And it was like, so it was nice to be able to be like, I'm fine. Leave me alone. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. just send that quick text. 
but if it was if I could go back in time, I don't think I would have had him. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, like one great example is I found out about like the full thirteen after the bombing through the phone. Like mm-hmm. which is mind blowing to me that it somehow hit news and people were hearing it back here before I even did and I was there, you know? Yeah. Um so things like that, I I think that's not a good thing, you know, and not mm-hmm. just for, you know, like the people there, but like for families. You know, like all types of stuff. Like it, it, if all of a sudden now this is hitting the news and I, I don't know if it hit the news because of phones, but I think, you know, that put a lot of stress on families back in America thinking that like, oh, okay, I know my kids in Afghanistan right now. Mm-hmm. Is, is, you know, that happening or is my husband, my wife, you know, things like that. Are they a part of that? And so right. I think that is a bit of a negative, but I think it was handled people were mature enough with them that didn't seem to be a huge problem what actions of your fire team squad platoon at hkia made you proudest man uh like i said probably just like the overall like initiative i am very impressed by just the aggressiveness they showed and like the control that they all had control over themselves Mm -hmm. i'm very very impressed by i mean based on our ROEs, there there were plenty of times that people could have shot plenty of times that people could have shot but no one did and i think that is something that i'm very very impressed by i'm very proud of i I think showing just that self-discipline that like okay it's not really necessary is an incredible thing to see especially in a situation like that and then seeing like the implicit communication just happen uh, yeah i'm impressed by the overall mission where do you think you excelled as as a leader as a decision maker at hkia where do you think you could have maybe done better? I think it's hard for me to say that I excelled anywhere out there. I mean, because things just kind of fell in my lap. So I don't want to take credit for most of that. There's a lot of things that, I mean, I think I could have done better. I mean, as far as, you know, getting people the rest that they needed, you know, things like that. Communicating with that, that's a huge thing that I think that I definitely could have done better is communicating what the situation was. Mm-hmm. I was in a mentality out there where it's like, okay, they don't need like, and I think, you know, this is a common mentality. It's a thing that's taught through different leadership courses is like, you know, giving that easy, quick intent. But I mean, I think giving intent without explanation is probably not the best route to go. And and I did a lot of that where it was like, hey, we're doing this, but didn't explain why we were doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I thought it would be best that it didn't get explained. But I think looking back on it now, I, I think, explaining it may have you know eased some people's minds on certain things so i mean there's a lot that i think that i could have excelled at but i but i don't want to take credit for being you know a a phenomenal leader or anything like that because i think that you know it comes down to like i had a great team with me and they just kind of made my job very easy i've heard from different sources that there's some animosity between 1-8 and 2-1 over the evacuation, did you see any of that? And if so, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I want to be very careful when saying this, sure. but I, I don't think I have no issue with two one, and I don't know anyone in one eight that personally has any animosity towards two one. Mm-hmm. I did see a lot of posts on the internet, things like that, where guys from two one were making posts about how one eight was, you know, beating women, beating children, things like that, and I think. As far as that goes, like I, I think it's absolutely bullshit. You know that that never happened. Like, were we aggressive with people? Absolutely, but there was never like 
any beating of women, beating of children. I think a lot of it comes down from the Afghani people. I, I, I have heard stories of them showing up at Abbey Gate and being like, oh, the ones wearing green were very mean and, you know, they were they were hurting us and things like that. And I don't think, I think it's a big misconception. I don't think that, you know, we were hurting people. I mean, to an extent, yes. I mean, there, there were there was violent action. We there were fist fights. There were things like that that were happening. But I, the big one that bothers me is when I see when I've seen posts of women and children getting hit. Like that never happened. It never happened under my eye. Uh, I, I can't think of a time that that happened. Mm-hmm. You can't think of a story where that would have happened. It, I, I've never heard that except coming from a post from someone from two one. And so. Uh, I, I think the whole thing of having animosity between units is silly. I think that, like, I I look at two one as like they did a great job. I think they absolutely did a great job out there, mm-hmm. and like, uh, there's no. I would consider them in, in any of them brothers, just like I do consider one eight. I mean, any marine really. So mm-hmm. I think that like the idea of attacking an entire unit for you know, doing the same mission as you, but maybe it just slightly different is silly mm-hmm. or, and just kind of blatantly wrong because it, it, it does cause problems. Back in 1.8 when some of these posts were happening on like, and it was always in like comment sections on Instagram mm-hmm. posts or something that I saw it. But like when people would see them, it was like pissing 1.8 off. Like it, so that, that, that animosity is there, I guess, where it was like, dude, that's not true. Like it, this is just false. And it, mm-hmm. so guys were getting irritated by that. But I think overall, like, the best solution to that is just accepting that we were both there. We both had absolutely separate missions. Like the, the mission set was different. Northgate was different than Abbeygate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eastgate was different than Abbeygate. These gates were completely different. The, the the dynamic at the gates were different. And I think that comes from all accounts. You can look into it and like people from all accounts have different accounts of how people acted at these gates. Right. And accepting that, hey, we had a different mission overall same mission we were doing a neo but like different orders things like that like it, they are different and so i think the idea of attacking an entire unit for it is just wrong i mean and that goes to anyone in one eight that has attacked two one i think that's absolutely wrong those guys did a phenomenal job at what they were doing and i think that it's it would be nice to see you know like and I and I have seen two one talk about one eight also doing a great job. So there's just certain onesies and twosies that I think have you know priorities or something in the wrong place. And I, I think that's just silly. You know, like we're, mm-hmm. we're all we were all doing the same thing, and we all got mm-hmm. mission completed. Have you had a chance to listen or watch any of the congressional hearings on on the neo? There were Marines from two one. I'm not sure if there were any from from one eight who testified, but have you have you seen any of those hearings? Yeah, I saw last week or you know two weeks ago. I don't remember exactly when the yeah. the two one sniper. Yeah, I I did I did listen to that. And I thought you know like based on like what he said, you know, I think that the missions were very similar. You know, very very similar. So I, like I said, it, I think it goes back to that last question. It, like we we were all dealing with a very chaotic situation and we all handled it and it got done. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think those. That hearing was heartbreaking, and I think he hit it right on the head, the whole mission. We mentioned Dustin Casey earlier, so he's one of your dear friends and also a Marine in, in your squad. Did you get a chance to, to listen to his his interview on, on the podcast? And if so, what did you make of it? Yeah, I actually uh, listened to it like the first time, like probably three weeks ago. And I think, I mean, 
it, it was weird listening to it. I, I I think he absolutely hits a lot of um things and I, I think it hit listening to his was a weird like refresher almost to me mm-hmm. of like okay what went down and like and I think hearing it also you know like it you know it was hearing one of my fire team leaders talking so it was like hearing his interview was a little bit perspective changing to me of like mm-hmm. okay we, we we saw things from different angles and i i know a lot of things were seen from the same angle but there were a lot of things seen from different angles and and in different ways mm-hmm. and so i think you know but i yeah i think he hit hit it on the head as well i i think everyone that i've listened to that's talked about this pretty much hits it on the head with their truth and you know and, and that that's that's the reality behind all this thing would you encourage other marines active and and those who have eas to share their stories Without a doubt, yeah, I think, I think that is one of the problems with you know the idea, you know, and like I said, I think it's gotten a little bit better, but even to this day, like you don't hear about like pe- people are very misunderstood about the, the world's largest neo. I think that's you know kind mm-hmm. of a wild thing. Like it, there has not been a neo done at, on that scale so quickly like Mm -hmm. it it was larger than vietnam so i think it's a it's a big thing where it's like anyone that talks about and i'm not comparing this i don't want to compare this to any other like you know different battles or things like that but like you you know you go around and talk about like desert storm for example and everyone knows about desert storm but then you bring up the you know evacuation in hkaya and people are just very they don't understand what it is so i think getting people that were there talking about it is a huge benefit one to like the mentality i think that's another thing like mentally you should be willing to talk about things if you did hard things talk about it it helps mentally and that is psychologically proven but also getting that you know story out there so it can be understood and i think really other than it just being understood i think that story honors you know the 13 u.s personnel and two british national citizens it it honors those afghani citizens that got killed in the bombing It, it getting that story out there gives a little bit more to that, th- those names. So you have gotten out of the Marine Corps. What advice would you give to Marines who are transitioning or plan on transitioning? So if you're planning on getting out of the Marine Corps, the biggest thing that I would suggest is like some, some sort of idea of what you want to do set up way prior. I failed at doing that and I came out and for like four months I was working a job that I didn't dislike but I didn't enjoy and so and now I'm working a job that I truly enjoy and I feel you know like a little bit of a purpose and so I think finding something that like you think that what whether you think that you'll enjoy it or not like try it out but I think finding something as quickly as possible because the whole transition it can be a pretty depressing stage where you're like you know missing the Marine Corps missing your boys the world's different you know so it's mm. like um, getting that done Another big thing is like handling medical issues. I, and I know it's a stigma. It's absolutely a stigma in the Marine Corps. It's a stigma in the military at all. It's like, oh, if you're hurt, like go to, to going to BAS, but like do that. <laughs> like I didn't feel any of my medical problems really that much until I was out. And I think it was maybe just because I was being more active for sure. I was being more active in. That's another thing. Stay active when you get out mm-hmm. because <laughs> your body deteriorates pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, like handling certain medical issues while they're there, that way you can get proper treatment and care when you get out. It's a huge thing. Tanner, I want to thank you for being willing to talk about your experiences, to share your story, to encourage others to do the same. And as I ask all my guests, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? Talk to your boys, you know, like talk to them, understand their space of mentality or where they're at. 
whether it be after something like that or just in general, people go through things and being there for them, having that shoulder to, you know, lean on or cry on or do whatever, like be that guy. It's not just, you know, about you. I think if you look at the world, like it's about you, you're, you're wrong. You got to be here for other people. So I think taking care of people that are around you, whether they're your best friends or, you know, loved ones, like take care of them, just take care of those people. And you know, that that's really all I have to say. Tanner, thank you again. Thank you.